Let's stand together and uh, let me bring you to an interesting text. This is uh, the Elephant Series, part three, as you've already been told. Uh, and I'll explain what that means in just a moment for those of you that are new. But we're looking at uh, John's Gospel, chapter 19. Uh, I'm reading the blue, and you're going to read the white. It's just two slides. This is what it says. And of course, the setting is the cross. And this is what it says. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Anybody know where the text comes from, where it's talking about where they cast lots? Psalm 22. Let's pray together. Father, we pause again to just express our hmm, overwhelming gratitude for your love and your blessings in our lives, the ultimate of which is Jesus Christ. And for the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit that takes what you've accomplished in Jesus and makes it possible and applicable and available in our lives. And so this morning, we just pause for a moment to acknowledge that you are here amongst us. Father, we ask now that you would grant the same Holy Spirit to give us a voice to speak and ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to comprehend, and particularly as we leave this property, this facility, this building, and go out into our lives where we are in relationship with spouses and children and family and friends and where we are in relationship with workmates and schoolmates and the people that provide services for us. And so we ask that you would help us to live out what it means to be disciples of Jesus Christ in tangible, practical, meaningful ways and we ask all of this in his name, the name that is above every name, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the elephant in the room today is gambling. Now, I know that it's um, a touchy subject. But Pastor Derek is on vacation today, so this is in honor of him. Now, this may not come as a surprise to, uh, may or may not come to, for those of us not living in Las Vegas, Nevada. But did you know that there are more Catholic churches in Las Vegas than there are casinos? So not surprisingly, on Sunday morning, people often put casino chips in the offering plate. And uh, because they come from uh, to so many churches from so many different casinos, 
What the Catholic Church came up with is that they bring all the chips once a month down to a uh, Franciscan uh, monastery where the monks actually sort them out and then they bring them to the respected casino to cash them in. This is done by chip monks. Pastor Derrickson never going to beat that. <laughs> but here's the situation. Here's the situation. University of Alberta says, study that they did says that 75% of Canadians gamble each year. According to a 2017 uh, survey that was done by the Canadian Association of Mental Health, uh, CAMH, that in Ontario, in Ontario, in the province of Ontario, 62 to 63% of adults participate in some form of gambling. That could be lottery tickets, slots, or tables, or a casino, or even online gambling. Did you know? Did you know that there are approximately 87,000, 87,000 electronic gaming machines in Canada? There are 33,000 lottery vendors, there are 60 permanent casinos, there are 250 racetracks, and there are 25,000 licenses to operate bingos, raffles, and temporary casinos in Canada. The CBC reported in 20, October of 2017 that nearly 38 million visits were made to Ontario casinos last year. And that the average visitor left $101 poorer than when they went in. So why is it that people gamble? Well, there's probably many reasons, but there are five that I've identified. First of all, there are economic reasons. Simply put, people go to, people gamble and they do so because they expect to win money. Hold that thought in your mind. There are personal reasons. People say that they, that they gamble for uh, excitement, they gamble for relaxation, some people gamble for the rush, they call it, the rush of winning. In other words, they gamble for Fun. And then, of course, some people gamble because of advertisement. They are recruited through the advertising. And then number four, many people gamble because of accessibility and availability to gambling activities, casinos, racetracks, and, of course, online internet gambling. And then the last one is that people gamble for social reasons. They are influenced by other people, particularly by family and friends. But also, people gamble and they go to gambling institutions because they want to be with other people. They're lonely. And when they are in a room with a lot of people, there is a pseudo-community. It's not real community, but it feels like community. Did you know that Christmas Day is the, one of the busiest days of the year for casinos? But that brings us to this. Why is gambling government sanctioned? 
Now, the advocates of gambling and the gambling industry will tell us there are three reasons, at least three reasons, why the government sanctions gambling. The first one has to do with employment. Simply put, it gives people jobs so they can support their family and their lives. But the second reason, which is a big reason, is revenue. Revenue. In Canada, the University of Alberta study that I mentioned just a moment ago discovered that gambling is a $13 billion industry in Canada. $13 billion. And in Ontario, the CBC reported that the province take from gambling hit a record in 2016 at $2.5 billion. Now, tied to revenue, of course, is social programs and social programming. The government and the advocates of gambling, the gambling industry tell us that it's from the proceeds of gambling, the $13 billion and the $2.5 billion, that actually that support social programs in our society. And a number of them, of course, are when we were in, uh, when our middle boy was in University of Georgia, um, we discovered that the, um, the state lottery in Georgia was only allowed to be put in place under this condition. That all of the proceeds that came into the state government had to be used so that students could go to university for their undergrad degree and their tuition and their board and everything else was covered out of the gambling revenue resources. Well, there's a number of things, of course, in Canada that is supported, our social programs that are supported by the revenue that comes from gambling. Somebody put it this way, one gambler, one participant said, gambling supports society and therefore society supports gambling. Now, but there is a much bigger issue about gambling that needs to be addressed. Gambling is more than just an economic question of government revenue. Gambling is a moral question. And it is a moral question that is over the issue of money over morality. The government, by gambling and by sanctioning gambling, they believe it is a way to easy money. And for the government, gambling, the gambling industry, looks like the golden goose that laid the golden egg. But the problem is, is that gambling and the gambling industry turns our governments into hucksters. And legalization is always followed by legitimization. It is a well-known established reality that gambling has always been considered a social evil but it's now being transformed into an acceptable social policy. Somebody said that gambling is a sickness, a disease, an addiction, an insanity, and is always a loser in the long run. Now, gambling and the gambling industry may look like a cash cow, 
for our governments, but it is not a painless panacea. Because whether we like it or not, or whether we're willing to accept it or not, gambling and the gambling industry is by nature parasitical and predatory. And that brings us to this. Whether our governments should enhance its revenues with gambling monies has to be considered in light of the losses for the people for us, the citizens of our province and of our nation. It is a moral problem when governments take advantage of their people, when they take from the people at the, at the, um, the potential of putting our well-being at risk and at putting our human flourishing in jeopardy. And it looks like that our governments are the ones that have a problem with addiction to gambling. University of Alberta, back to our study, the average Canadian household, the average Canadian household, spends $1,000 annually on gambling. Average. Now, we know, of course, that a host of us do not spend any money on gambling. I didn't spend any money on gambling last year or the year before. So that means that there are other people like me, and the average, it is an average, a lot of people spend a lot more than $1,000 a year. But in Canada, the addiction rate for gambling is 3%. 3%. By the way, that is the same number, or the approximate same number, as addiction to alcoholism in Canada. That should help us see that in a little bit less, the social realities of this. The Canadian Association of Mental Health did a survey in Ontario, and 1.2% of Ontarians are addicted to gambling. And so one website asked this question. It asked, is gambling harmful? And the answer came back, a small but significant number of men, women, and young people become addicted to gambling. A small number. That small number adds up to 340,000 people. I don't think that's a small number. And the Ontario government spends 2% of its gambling revenue to cover the costs of addiction treatment programs, research, prevention, and public awareness. Jennifer McClausland said these words, "Gambling gambling can be just as addictive as drugs and alcohol. Teens and their parents need to know that they're not just gambling with money, they're gambling with their lives. I remember when we were in Essex, and of course the casino came to Windsor, the Windsor Casino. A couple of things uh, amazed me. First of all, what amazed me is the number of people that just wanted to go to the casino to see how classy it was. 
I remember going to coming to Barry. Ruth and I, Ruth will remember this. And I remember when we went to Barry and a, a couple in our church who were, in my mind, very mature and spiritual. They want us to give us a tour of the area, so one of the things that they wanted to do was they wanted to bring us by Casino Rama because it was so impressive. Somebody told me that, <clears throat> are you ready for some, so just put your seatbelt on for a minute. Somebody told me that when gamblers sit down at slot machines, they actually wear depends so they don't have to get up and go to the bathroom. And those that do not wear Depends actually urinate on the carpet in front of the slot machines. So they don't have to get up and go to the bathroom and leave the machine. I remember when we were in Essex and I heard this story, a lady relayed this story to me there was an older woman and a younger woman in one of the bathrooms in the casino. And the young woman and her husband had gone there to gamble and just to spend some time just having some fun. And by the time that they were, he was done, he had lost all of their savings. And this young woman is laying on the couch in the restroom and this older woman is trying to console her. And the person who relayed this story to me is watching this unfold. And this is what the young woman said. These are her exact words. My God, he's gambled everything away. Does that sound like fun? I'll come back to that in a moment. For the government and the people. Gambling is the promise of easy money. But what it does is that we sell our souls to an empty promise. And we end up trading our souls and giving them to the God of mammon. And we know what Jesus had to say about that. But that brings us to this. What does the Bible actually say? about gambling. Do you know that the text that we read at the beginning of this message is the only gambling scene in the entire Bible? The only one. And what's interesting, ironically, the Bible doesn't say anything directly for or against gambling. Did you know that? Nothing directly is said in the Bible. There's no, like, 11th commandment, you shall not gamble. Although the 10th commandment does tell us not to covet. But the Bible has a lot to say indirectly about gambling. Let me give you some examples. In the Old Testament, in Ecclesiastes, it says, He who loves money, he or she, will not be satisfied with money, Hold that thought. Nor he who loves wealth with his income, this is also vanity. Jesus said, of course, in Mark's gospel, for what shall it profit a person if they gain the whole world and lose their soul? And Jesus, of course, in Luke's gospel also said this. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. 
And Paul said to Timothy that the very, the very, the love of money is the very root of evil, all kinds of evil. And then Hebrews tells us that we are to be content with our lives and be free from the love of money. And that brings us to these. The sovereignty of God and luck. We read a couple of weeks ago in Matthew where Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And are not one of them, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father's knowledge, but even the hairs of your head are numbered. That's talking about God's sovereignty. He knows. He's aware. And so we understand that belief in luck and chance and belief in, a, in the sovereignty of God or a sovereign God is mutually in Exclusive, mutually exclusive. If God is omnipotent, if God is omniscient, if God is the creator, then chance and luck make no sense. Things don't just happen. Now, we all know, of course, that sometimes it looks like there's such a thing as luck, the luck of the draw, chance. Sometimes it looks like there is such a thing as coincidence and happenstance. But these are all phenomenologically based. Now, don't get hung up on that word. This is what it means. We say all the time, we use this all the time. We say, the sun rises and the sun sets. Does the sun rise and set? No, it just looks like it. Phenomenologically, it looks like the sun rises and the sun sets from our perspective. The same thing is true with luck. There is no such thing as luck. You ever watch when they do the lotto thing, they put all the balls in the thing and they select them out? Do you know what the chances of you winning the lottery? Do you know what the chances are of me winning the lottery? The chances are 1 in 13,983,816. In other words, the chances of me winning the lottery is 1 in 14 million. And yes, some people do. But when you look at luck and chance and happenstance and coincidence, Phenomenologically, in the end, gambling is a celebration of irrationality. Now, gambling is designed in such a way for a person to abandon reason. Now, let me just tell you, if the casino was there to make sure that we make money, they wouldn't be in business long. Because it's always tilted toward the casino and the owners of the casino, and it's always tilted toward corporate greed. And corporate greed doesn't care about the plight of my life or my marriage or my home or my 
issues with addiction, it doesn't care. All it cares is that they get the money out of my pocket, out of my bank account, and into their greedy hands. But I've got a list of 10, 15 psychological incentives that casinos use. I'll give you four of them. First of all, we know that money is converted to credits or tokens or to chips. In other words, the money is made into, a, into an abstraction, so it's harder to keep count of how much money we've actually gambled or lost. Low-level lighting, no clocks, no windows, is psychologically intended to help us forget about the outside and forget about the passage of time. Casinos often, not always, but they often offer free alcohol because when you sit at the table and you're drinking alcohol under the influence of alcohol, of course, we have poor judgment and we lose our money even faster. And all of us have seen a casino floor, either in movies or online or whatever. They are designed in such a way to be a giant maze. You cannot go from point A to point B in a direct line to casino. Why not? Because they want you to meander. And the more you meander, the more chances that you're going to stop and that you're going to stay longer and you're going to spend more money at either a slot machine or a gaming table. Logically, belief in, belief in luck and chance and belief in a sovereign God does not make sense. But put your seatbelt on. You're feeling a little tense? Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm feeling a little tense here. Come on. Turn back to them and say, just take a deep breath. Pastor Todd will be done in a week or so. We'll be done shortly, very shortly. Now, feel better? When we gamble and we believe in luck and not in a sovereign God, there's a number of things we're saying indirectly. The first thing we're saying is this, is I do not trust God and his sovereignty in my life. What I'm saying is that I cannot or I will not trust God with the direction of my life and my finances. What I'm actually saying is this, I can do things better. The second thing we have to consider is stewardship and work. Now, we know, of course, that Psalm 24 verse 1 says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. A guiding principle in our lives as Christians, particularly as Christians, is that our time, our talent, and our resources belong to God. That's the principle of stewardship. And this is also the message of Jesus' parables. In, in the parable of the talents, in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about time, talents, and he talks about resources and the responsibility that we have on his behalf to use them so that we can support our life and the work of the kingdom of God and on and on and on. 
And when we take those resources and use them irresponsibly, that's a violation of stewardship. But there's also this. You ready? We are not our own. Paul tells us very clearly that we were bought with a price. And he tells us that you are not your own. We are not our own. So we should glorify God with our bodies, with our lives. But there's also this. Scripture specifically tells us that we are to work. We are to work for our lifestyle. Matter of fact, in the scriptures, there are only three ways to earn money legitimately. One is work. We'll come back to that in a moment. The other one is this, through sort of a, a bartering and an exchange idea, which is not gambling, by the way. And the other one is through lifetime gifts or through inheritance. Those are the three ways. But Paul says something very interesting in Ephesians. In Ephesians 4.28, he says, Let the thief, not a great line, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, being honest, doing honest work with his or her own hands. Thessalonians, Paul says that if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. And then Proverbs says this, Proverbs says, whoever works his land, and we can do the 21st century calculation, and will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits, gambling, lacks sense. And now we come to this, greed and contentment. Gambling feeds greed and covetousness. The antidote for greed and covetousness is contentment. And Paul says a number of times, but I've just got two examples. He says in Philippians chapter 4, he says, For I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. And then he says to Timothy, he says, But... Godliness with contentment is great gain. Everybody knows that gambling is a social evil. All the way back to George Washington. Washington said, gambling is the child of avarice, greed, the brother of iniquity, and the father of mischief. But how many gamblers... How many people think that they're going to gamble and they're going to get something for nothing? That they're going to get a return on something that they've invested very little? That they are going to get rich quick and without much effort? It is the false promise of easy wealth. But I like what somebody else said, and I don't know who it is but I found this quote. Gambling is the sure way to get nothing for something. We justify it, don't we? We do it. Here's how we justify it. We think we're different. We think we're luckier 
than the next person. We think that the odds are with us. We think, but I'll win. Do you know what that is, folks? That is pure narcissism. Thinking that my luck is better than Michael's or Michael's luck is better than mine. Or that, listen, Kevin may have lost everything at the casino, but I'm not. I'm going to win. And then we start to lose and think, we think, we'll just keep playing because we're going to win it back. Hello? Wake up and smell the chaos. It's narcissism. And this one I love. Oh, this one I love. Pastor, when I win the lottery, when I win the lottery, I'm going to help more people and I'm going to give to the church. Okay, 34 years of pastoral ministry, I have never seen a dime come in from the lottery. I just, a while ago, buried a man who won the lottery. The church never saw a dime. And if you're wondering, yes, I'll take it. Yes. But don't be gambling. We don't need it. God doesn't need the world to to pay for his work. He has a whole other value system. But I love it when they say, you know what, pastor, when I win, I'm going to help a lot of people, and I'm going to give to the church. Oh, I love that. Now, I know, I, I don't want to be totally cynical here, because I know that the idea that people use their wealth to help other people does exist, yes. But I've been around long enough to know that most people use their wealth for self-indulgence. And by the way, put your seatbelt on. This is not in my notes. This is for free. I have never met people with a lot of money who didn't love their money. I'm going to go, let's move back to the notes. That's way too dangerous. You see, all wealth does is this. Wealth that is unearned. What it does is this. It just simply amplifies the tendencies that already exist within us. Okay? Now, what I mean by that is this. If you are a miserable, non-tithing, I shouldn't point. If you are a miserable... (laughs) And I'm not looking at anybody. If you are a miserable, non-tithing, non-giving person today, when you win the lottery... You're just going to be a wealthy, non-tithing, non-giving, miserable person. Wealth will not change who you are. Gambling creates a condition where people are willingly duped of their resources in a something-for-nothing exchange. So let me end with a story, and we'll all feel warm and fuzzy, and we'll go home. Oh, by the way, uh, interesting, Jesus said, you know, when Jesus talked about you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, right, and your neighbor as yourself, gambling is the very opposite. 
Gambling is about love of money and love of self and doesn't care about love of God and love of neighbor. But with that said, let me tell you my story. Abraham Lincoln, of course, we all know who he is. And before he was a big shot and the president of the United States, he was a lawyer who worked on behalf of those that were being taken advantage of by the railroad. And the railroad in Lincoln's time were corporate greed, and they were trying to take from people, innocent people, and run over people is what they were trying to do, literally and metaphorically, when I think about it. One day, a friend of Lincoln's is coming down the road, and he sees all of a sudden this guy sailing out of the window of a second-story building. And he lands on the ground, gets up, dusts himself off, and runs away. But the friend who sees this recognizes that this is Lincoln's law office. He goes up, and he says to Abraham Lincoln, he says, what happened? And Lincoln says, I threw the guy out the window. True story, by the way, true story. And his friend says, what did he do? Well, Lincoln said, he was a lawyer from the railroad, and he wanted me to cheat. And he offered me $5,000, and I said no. And then he offered me $15,000, and I said no again. And then he offered me $20,000, and that's when I threw him out the window. And the friend said, why'd you throw him out the window? Lincoln said, because he was getting near my price. What's your price? What's my price? I have one. I don't know what it is yet. I don't want to learn, but I have one. And you have a price. What's our price? Everybody has one. Stand with me. Father, I know this is an awkward subject. But I think that the church should deal with awkward subjects. And so I thank you today for the ability to share this and for the willingness to receive it. But Father, at the end of the day, it all comes down to the individual. It comes down to every single individual man and woman in the room. It's not about me pointing my finger at my spouse or my brother or my sister or a family member or anybody else. It comes down to me, to us as individual persons. What's our price? Because, Father, we are made in your likeness, but that likeness sometimes gets incredibly marred and skewed. And we are fallen, and we are sinful people, and we are susceptible. But, Father, there are some of us in the room who are narcissistic. We think we will never get addicted. We think we can play with the fire and never get burnt. We think that's for other people, not for us. And the sad thing is that we find out just too late. 
So, Father, I pray now, when all is said and done that we've said about gambling today, it's not about the other person. It's not about what's happening on the Kingsway. It's not about what is happening around our province and around our nation. It's about what's happening in me, in my heart. What's my price? So I ask you, Father, I ask you as a congregation, I ask you as a church family, that you would continue to make us into a people who believes and trusts in your sovereignty, in your love, that you will never let us go because you are faithful. And we can trust you. And we can put our confidence in you. And Lord, that we will continue to be a congregation, a church family, that will live according to the principles and of the word of God and the values of the kingdom of God, not the values of our, of our world and of the worldly system. And so, Father, with that today, we ask for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit to attend unto our hearts as individuals throughout this day and throughout this week. We ask all of this in the glorious name, in the beautiful name, in the greatest name, Jesus Christ, the living Son of God, your Son, our Savior. Amen.